I'm Scott Lucas. This is World Unfiltered. Last week, I noticed the juxtaposition side by side of two incidents in Turkish relations with the European Union. A European Union delegation went to Ankara, met with officials, and Turkish state media was quite excited that the EU had expressed support for the reform agenda of the Erdogan government. The economic reforms, the judicial reforms were cited. Very positive. But a day earlier, the European Union had expressed a statement of deep concern over events at a university in Istanbul, Boazici University, claiming that there had been a large number of students, more than 100, who had been detained. A statement which raised issues, long-running issues, about what is the place of democracy and the place of rights within the Turkish-European Union relationship. And I have to note, it's been more than 20 years since Turkey applied for EU membership. I don't think that's happening in the near future. So is Europe still important for Turkey? Is Turkey still important for Europe? Or even if they're important for each other, are they destined to be, well, in a statement, in a situation of permanent separation? Well, I need to go to someone who can help me out with this. So I want to welcome Professor Senem Aydin Duzgit. She's Professor of International Relations at Sabancha University. She is the Academic Affairs Coordinator at the Istanbul Policy Center, a member of a number of European boards, including the European Council on Foreign Relations, published in numerous international journals. And she's written two books, which have been important in my education on learning about Turkey and Europe, including her latest book in 2017 on Turkey and the European Union. So, Sanam, welcome to World Unfiltered. We got a bit of a task in front of us so that you can educate me and the viewers about where Turkey and Europe stand. Let me start with this. You've written in your books and your articles that this is an important relationship for Turkey. This is a strategic relationship for Turkey. In 2021, is that still true? That Europe is strategically important for Turkey? And is Turkey strategically important for Europe? Okay, thank you so much, Scott, um, for the warm introduction. This is, of course, it's a crucial question, but the answer to that question, I think, depends a lot on where you stand, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, to me, yes, both sides are, you know, crucially important to each other. It is a, it is a significant relationship because of various reasons. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is obviously the European Union in the past had a certain role to play in Turkish democratic reforms. Uh, so from a normative perspective, I think the European Union has been an important actor for Turkey. Of course, more recently in the last decade or so, that hasn't really been the case, but we can discuss that perhaps later. And the EU, of course, is economically an important partner to Turkey. If you look at the figures and the numbers, they speak for themselves. It's the number one trading partner for the country. Countries like Holland, Germany, they are prime uh, FDI um, sources um, in Turkey. And so, so, yes, it is an important relationship. On the European side, of course, obviously, there's an economic part of the story. But again, more recently, you have a migration side of the story as well, obviously, with the EU-Turkey migration deal, uh, which is of key importance also for um, the political you know, lives, the political systems uh, within Europe. 
especially mainstream political parties feel as if their power hinges or you know in, in relation to extreme right political parties on the success of this migration deal because it has huge domestic political salience as well so yes and various other of course reasons and factors can be cited but these are uh, some of the initial uh, ones that come to my mind so it is a significant relationship i mean geographically speaking again again it speaks for itself so i don't need to go into detail with that and i mean that's partly the reason for the economic relationship as well uh, to some extent so that's what you have but on the other hand of course when you look at how the actors have been treating each other then you don't really always see that at least at an academic level the strategic component of that relationship reflected in the way in which the political preferences are made right so if you look at for instance how the turkish government has been dealing uh, with europe in the last decades i mean in the last decade or so or perhaps more visibly let's say in the last 5 years or so especially after 2016 it looks as if you know it's only looking at europe from a very sort of a narrow transactional perspective where you have you know a very outdated customs union and that's about it right and the migration deal and that about sums up the state of the relationship as it is and i'm afraid from a european perspective it doesn't get any better than that as well i mean they too have uh, over time you know change their views on turkey also you know due to the development within turkey itself obviously this is not totally on the european union from or uh, from a you know um, accession negotiating country to a strategic partner and then right now with sort of an ambivalent if not totally hostile neighbor uh, with which they don't know how to deal with right so uh, that's 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 the course of affairs on the european side as well and i think on the european side again you have this focus on a very narrowly defined transactional relationship where all that you know that can be offered to turkey you know you know regardless of whether this regime is in power or not is again an upgrade of the customs union the the continuation the sustenance of the migration deal and perhaps a few other sort of forms of cooperation here and there and and that's about it you know there's no talk of accession perspective i mean one can argue again that's largely due to what's been happening in turkey but also we have to remember that the eu's ambivalence about whether or not turkey actually should become a member you know predates what's been happening in turkey in terms of the the, the deterioration of human rights and and, and freedoms etc etc so in this context what you have is a situation in which the eu has absolutely minimal leverage on whatever is happening in turkey such as for instance as you mentioned in the introduction uh, with the bozici events or other forms of violation of democracy and human rights which you see on various different platforms in turkey and bozici events obviously is probably the most recent one uh, that comes to mind but we have to i think state that that this is happening at all levels in the country so the eu only expresses concern and there's very little that it can do beyond that because there is very sort of limited tools of conditionality that it can apply right now add to that of course and we haven't mentioned it so far other kinds of conflictual sort of uh, forms uh, or con- conflicts that are occurring due to the um, more strategic or foreign policy issues such as the eastern mediterranean that we haven't really mentioned 
but you know we only sort of focused on certain aspects of cooperation but there for instance you have a huge instance of conflict as well and due to which the european union is currently imposing sanctions on turkey they're very limited sanctions because the member states can't agree on what to do or you know they only they can only agree on the lowest common denominator but still they're there that also goes to show that how the relationship has been evolving from you know um, intense cooperation on membership to sort of transactional partnership to some extent uh, a very conflictual uh, kind of a more adversarial type of relationship on the one side so we can we can unpack any of these well i think that's a great summary of as it were where we are in recent years. Let me just walk it back for those who are new to this topic. I think Turkey's relationship with the EU or the European Economic Community goes back to 1963. I mean, have we seen, is that relationship, was the pattern, you know, from the 60s forward, one which was a fairly steady, consistent relationship, or were there ups and downs where we had these adversarial periods in the past? Yes, there have always been ups and downs in the relationship. The EU-Turkey relationship has never been a sort of a consistent one, a uniform one. There have been, it's, it's been a cyclical relationship, right? If that's how we can define it. So, you know, you had times, for instance, where, um, you know, things were rather positive. Like in particular, what comes to mind is the period between um, late 1999 and 2005 or 2006, 2007, you know, if you can extend it to that. And then, of course, you have periods in which political relations were even completely frozen. That is in the right aftermath of the, of the 1980 military coup. So, uh, so you have these ups and downs, right? You had uh, certain situations in the 1970s, obviously due to the rising polarized, domestic political polarization and political instability within Turkey. That relations also soured. But then, of course, you have the early, you know, 1960s when, when Turkey has just signed the association agreement and it's it's trying to undertake certain reforms. So again, you have ups and downs all along the way. But you also see, yes, so it has a certain ambivalence, but you also always had this sort of push for trying to engage Turkey back in and also the push by Turkey itself to be engaged in Europe, right? Or whenever the sort of domestic turmoils were somehow overcome, even for brief periods. I think right now we might be witnessing a different period than what we had in the past. So I think this might be a qualitatively, a very different type of relationship that might be emerging because um, on, on the part of Turkey, I did, well, of course, rhetorically speaking, the Turkish government commits itself to full accession. They keep on talking that, you know, saying that Turkey is, you know, um, that Turkey wants to be a member of the EU, et cetera, et cetera. But we know, obviously, that they, they cannot serious, be serious about this, right? I mean, if you look at the actions that Turkey is taking, they're doing everything that they can in their power to ensure that this country does not sufficiently fulfill the Copenhagen political criteria, if not anything else. So uh, you can't really expect this to be, to be taken seriously. So I think, you know, if you sort of, you know, go beyond that official rhetoric, you see a Turkey that is turning further and further away from Europe, and you see a Europe that's facilitating that, right? That's enabling that, in other words, by its actions, by, you know, some of the positions that it takes regarding foreign policy issues like the Eastern Mediterranean, the, the, the sort of the state that it, you know, the position that it took on Cyprus, 
and other kind of territorial disputes and other, you know, sort of issues as well. So now, you know, over the migration deal, where, you know, it was obviously trying to preserve its own sort of, you know, domestic interests, but on the other hand, you know, signing a, a very, you know, I would say a very problematic deal from an ethical perspective, from an international law mm. perspective. So you also have a Europe that, you know, that's enabling Turkey to do that and that doesn't really have or possess the sufficient agreements or the tools to reverse what's happening. And on the other hand, of course, you have, sorry, I don't want to take too long, but I mean, it's, it's, it's rather a complex picture, in my opinion. You also have an international system that enables that as well, right? Uh, and again, we can go into that. So you have what you have. And in my opinion, a qualitatively, a very different form of relationship that unfortunately, from where I stand, uh, emerging. And I really want to unpack there's so much there that you've talked about in the relationship. One more is that we're background question, though, to get us up to that. Why is there a nutshell answer why accession wasn't completed? Why mm -hmm. Turkey did not make it into the EU before we get to these recent tensions? Was it the question of rights and reforms? Was it the question of alignment of systems? You know, you've talked about this concept of differentiated integration in Europe recently, but we couldn't quite reach that with Turkey. Is there a single answer why that EU membership process didn't culminate in Turkish accession? Mm -hmm. Oh, well, Scott, again, I mean, you know, these are questions that can take quite a while to respond to, but I will try to respond in a okay. nutshell, okay? I'll be super quick. Okay, now you have a number of factors that interacted, I think, with one another to, uh, to deliver the result, right? That, that's basically the, the freezing of any perspective of succession. Now, on the one hand, I think we have to look at what's happened in the EU, right? I think the, the start of the explanation with that has to be, it has to be with the, with the European attitudes toward Turkish, Turkish accession, right? I mean, if you look at, for instance, if you go back, because I know that some viewers will be pretty young, right? We have lots of students who listen, et cetera. They don't remember these. So I keep on reminding these to them in our lectures and in our publications, et cetera. But basically what's happened in 2005 is when actually Turkey started accession negotiations with the EU, even from day one, there were always mixed messages from the European Union as to whether or not, you know, even if Turkey did everything, even if it completed all of the negotiating chapters on whether it could actually become a member. So there was never a unified commitment on the part of the EU as it was, for instance, in the case of Eastern enlargement countries, or even to some extent to the, to the accession of Western Balkan countries, that, that never existed with Turkey, right? So there was always this sort of equivocal, this sort of very um, extremely, I would say ambivalent messages. Now, what happens when you give such messages out? What happens is that if a country is negotiating accession or it's contemplating accession, it has to undertake reforms. But the reforms are costly, right? To, to join the EU. So if you're going to undertake those reforms, you have to know that you're definitely going to exceed, right? So the whole perspective has to have a strong degree of credibility. And that's what's been missing in the case of Turkey. And I think now this hasn't this isn't the only reason, obviously, mm. but it is an important reason. And this I would say has hugely weakened the Turkish appetite for reform, right? 
in late 2000s. And coupled on top of that, what came was the rise of an even more, you know, stronger and more powerful one-party government that did not really need the EU so much anymore for domestic legitimacy, right? And, uh, and also that was becoming more and more frustrated with the European demands, also knowing that credibility was weak. And if you have these two combined together, you have this kind of, you know, situation in which, you know, there, there, there won't be much progress for accession. Now, I think this is the sort of the general, the general picture that the general sort of the reasons, the broad reasons behind where we are today. But also, I think another thing that I'd like to add to this is, of course, the Cyprus issue, right? Because that's also had a hugely important role to play in, in what happened in 2005, 2006. Because again, some viewers might not know, but the reason, the technical reason as to why Turkey cannot close any of the accession negotiation chapters, any chapters of the Aki with the EU is because of the Cyprus conflict, right? Is because it, yeah, it committed to um, to opening the 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 airports and, and you know the seaports to ships and planes coming from Cyprus, and it it refused to do so when the push came to shove because it was expecting uh, isolations on the part of the Turkish Cypriots to be eased, and the EU could, did not do that or could not do that because the Cypriots were already in the EU as members. And then it didn't, you know, it didn't abide by its commitment. And then now you also have a technical reason as to why Turkey cannot close any of the accession negotiation chapters. So those are, the, I mean, other reasons can be cited. We could unpack this further, but if I had to be quick, these are the most important ones that I would underline. Oh, I, I want to take a bit of time to, to <laughs> open this out just a bit, but because it sounds like a lot of where we are in 2021, you've summarized it can go back to that period 15 years ago when we're talking about, well, here are the roadblocks to accession. But I guess kind of summarize this, in a sense, I get the sense of a Turkish reaction to European sentiments, both specific European actions and the way that these are presented. I get a sense of Turkish interests that aren't quite fitting, such as the Turkish interest in Eastern Mediterranean in Cyprus. I've also have Prime Minister and then President Erdogan, who and his Justice and Development Party are consolidating power. Uh, in a way, though, if we could test out all of those, especially this move to the transactional relationship in recent years, is that more a continuation of a Turkish reaction to Europe? Is it something to do with a change in Turkish strategy? The notion of strategic depth has shifted. Is it to do with President Erdogan himself? his own personal vision of Europe? Or is it to do with Turkish institutions, maybe the military institutions, the political institutions who don't quite see Europe in the same way that they might have more than a decade ago? Well, I mean, all of these factors, I think, play a role uh, and have played a role. But I would say, yes, I mean, obviously, Turkey does react to Europe. I mean, it's partly a reaction, but also I think a partly self-evaluation on the part of the Turkish policymakers as to where they'd like to see themselves. I mean, obviously, um, Turkey is currently governed by an elite, uh, which unlike, right, other governing constellations or coalitions or, you know, the, the figures in the Republican history of Turkey, does not have any commitment uh, to the European project or to uh, belonging to the West, right? In terms of 
national identity, in terms of the vision for the future of the country, right, domestically and also externally, you know, foreign policy like. And when you have that, obviously, you have a very different outlook on how your relations with the EU should be. Then you can just say, well, you know, let's just take as much as we can. Let's just focus it transactional. And when we're faced with sanctions and stuff, let's at least make sure that they're minimal, right? Let's incur the least amount of harm that we can have, but also look for so-called alternatives, right? Diversify our foreign policy options, right? Because it's no longer the Cold War world and you know we're, we're living in a multipolar world, so we should adjust accordingly. And that doesn't really necessitate closer relationships with Europe, especially since they're making also demands relating to our domestic governance, right? And so there is this kind of worldview. And also, again, as I said, it's a difference in terms of vision and a vision of identity for the country as well. So, I mean, this, of course, enables a country to have more acrimonious relationship with its European partners. And the Europeans have not been making it very difficult as well. I mean, look at, for instance, how the French have been behaving, you know, in the Eastern Mediterranean and in terms of the language, you know, Turkey as a hostile partner, whereas, you know, they should form a dialogue with Russia. Like, really? You know, I mean, I'm not saying one is better than the other or anything, but it just goes to show that it's making things easier for a ruling elite that already is not, doesn't have much of a problem with having more acrimonious relations with the Europeans, right? And that's also shifting Turkish public opinion to some extent as well. So I would say, yes, I mean, we are dealing with a sort of a different state of affairs because we are dealing uh, with an ideologically, a very different form of government and governing elite that Turkey didn't have before uh, in its Republican history. And on top of that, we are dealing with a Europe that just doesn't know how to deal with Turkey, but that also is having, I think, in my opinion, still existential doubts about where its place should be in this evolving world, right? I mean, it, it's sort of trying to find its place in a post-Brexit setting in terms of how it's going to deal with China, how it's going to forge new relations now with, with, the, with the United States, with the change of government, etc. Right. So that's also I think the EU is also going through, have been going through for a while, a rather troubling times. So I think, again, it's in this context that we should be able to read the relationship. OK, we got that you know, from the high level, from the elite level, that range of issues. But you've written a lot also about identity, identity at, you know, at a, at a broader level. And I know here in the UK, uh, I can think back to 2016 in terms of cultural identity, the way that Turkey was positioned in the Brexit debate. We have seen recently in France, the way that French identity has, let's say, positioned Turkey and Islam in a very problematic way. How much has Turkish cultural identity shifted in the last few years regarding Europe, or has it shifted at all regarding a vision of Europe and relations with Europeans? Okay, well then let me, I think I'm going to answer that question by going back to my own research, because as you said, I've done a lot of research on that, and that's the only basis I think on which I could speak, otherwise it would just be speculation. I think what I have seen in my own work is this. Now, if you look at only sort of statistical numbers, like public opinion polls, that, you know, try to gouge Turkish public opinion on, on Europe or EU relations with the EU and this and that, whatever. If you look at those numbers, what you see is that they tell you that there's been a drop in support for Turkey's accession to the EU, for instance, which used to be 
at like 70 something percent at its highest level in mid 2000s. And now it's around what, somewhere between 45 to 50% or so, so somewhere in the middle. But I don't think, you know, public opinions as such really sort of capture the content of that sentiment, right? And mm -hmm. what people mean by those. Now, if you dig a little bit deeper, I think what you see is that you have a situation in which you never really had sort of a very pro-European or Europhile 70% of the public anyway, right? So really much of that came from the supporters of the governing party itself. And because it was pro-European and because it had adopted a pro-European rhetoric back when years ago when it was first in power, its constituency also shifted temporarily, right? To a more sort of pro-European rhetoric and discourse. You know, Fast forward to 2020 or you know, late 2010s, and you unpack that and you see that what you have is that you end up with that 40-50% of the population that you know, some of these people harbored more negative sentiments towards Europe, but because of the you know, domestic tensions, polarization and situation within Turkey, they are starting to develop a much more pro-European attitude right as a kind of a reaction to what's been happening within turkey itself right in terms of you know governance standards etc etc we can go into that so 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 you have this sort of interesting change of consolations which you can't really gather just by looking at public opinion data and numbers right you open them up and then you see that the sort of the content has been changing that the people who express support or more pro-European attitudes have been changing. But so, but having said that, I think that's quite still when you look at the numbers and when you look at that content, I think there's still some ground for optimism, right? Because it still shows that despite all the sort of anti-Western uh, rhetoric and, you know, that we see on the part of, you know, government media and here and this and elsewhere, you still have a considerable population of the considerable part of the public that still harbors pro-European or pro-Western sentiments, you know, as a reaction to the government or whatever, right? But still it's there. But I think also, I mean, you might also interpret this as a, as, as a consequence of polarization in Turkey, right? Because what you have, since you mentioned identities, is polarization of worldviews that often translates also in polarization of identities, you know, partisan-based polarization, all have you, that often reflects in a 50-50 kind of, you know, numerical sort of uh, division on, on, on various issues. And that's what you have, I think, to some extent uh, regarding attitudes or public attitudes towards Europe too. Okay. All right, well, let me build on those attitudes and, and put this, I mean, Karl Marx once said economics wins. Well, wait, okay, he didn't say that, I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> But, but the primacy of that economic factor, I mean, I've been struck in World Unfiltered with the chats that we've had with, with, with analysts. Russia arguably can't fill, won't be able to fill the space that Turkey needs for economic development. China at this point, still early to say what kind of space that it would fill. To what extent do you take those public attitudes where you do have that sentiment, that pro-European sentiment, and then you have Turkish business and industry looking at Europe in more than a transactional way, looking at almost like an economic strategy that you need to have there. How much does this swing this back towards that ongoing need to go beyond the transaction, maybe not next year, maybe not a couple of years from now, but within the next decade? 
Well, um, yeah, I think it does play a role. I mean, there is that push, I think, by the business community. I mean, for instance, the Turkish business community has been pushing for an upgrade of the customs union uh, mm-hmm. because the customs union agreement as it is, is a joke, right? I mean, economically speaking, I mean, it's just bad economics as, as some economists would say. It's just not working as it is. It's very pre-modern, it's archaic and it needs to be changed. The European partners know this, the Turkish partners know this, the, the, the Turkish industrial community knows this and it's been pushing for an upgrade, but it's not happening. Why? Again, the political hurdles, right? This is the problem. I mean, the political hurdles are and they have been, you know, piling up to such an extent that even, you know, you know, measures or policies that are required, you know, by purely looking at it from an economic rationality point of view just cannot be realized. And that's what's been happening right now. So I don't know how sort of further that push needs to that needs to go. Right. Or how that pressure needs to build up to really make a change because the European partners, you know, don't want an upgrade of the customs union. They don't want a more intense economic relationship unless they want to see some, you know, commitment to to, to political reform on the Turkish front, right? And at least certain sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, policies of goodwill to that effect. And, you know, the government refuses to do that. And then, you know, the business community tells the European partners that you should upgrade the customs union anyway, right? Because this is just going to benefit. This is not going to benefit the government per se. It's going to benefit the business community, etc., the public. But then the European partners are not going to have it because they don't want to look like they are, you know, appeasing a government to which they're imposing sanctions. So at the end of the day, you have a situation in what, in which, even though there is pressure, even though there is economic rationale, you're not having any progress. And that goes to show how even economic interests can be impeded by these and sometimes often even irrational sort of political um, considerations or stubbornness or I don't know, whatever you'd like to call it. And I'm afraid, you know, unless the political issues are resolved, I find it very difficult for the parties to make progress on that front. Okay, I, I've tried with I've tried with public opinion. I've tried with economics. Uh, let me try. Sorry, Scott. I, I I don't want to be this woman. It's all doom and gloom. But <laughs> no, no, it's it's that necessary voice that we need there. Let me get let me try with migration because there this week there's been a, an analysis from the Klingendel Institute in the Netherlands, yeah. which yeah. is very positive that this is the way forward for the EU. Turkish relationship to to upgrade in a way the migration deal. I think the 3 billion euros that Turkey is receiving from the EU for receiving Syrian refugees and other refugees, that expires. So the argument is if we renew that deal, it doesn't have to just be transactional. It can be the basis for reviving the relationship. Is migration a barrier to closer Turkish-EU relations, or is it the possible catalyst for closer Turkish-EU relations at this point? Yeah, I think I slightly disagree with the Klingendel <laughs> assumption there, because I think, I, I, I mean, if you look at what's been happening after the migration deal, we haven't seen, we haven't seen any improvement whatsoever in the relationship. I think the migration deal really sort of marked, you know, the, the, the transactional nature of the relationship that's emerging. First of all, the I mean, I think many people in Turkey, including you know, in the public, but also in opposition and others, have been questioning, you know, what's been the benefit of the migration deal for Turkey? What did Turkey get, right, as a result of the migration deal? 
I mean, even people in government have been questioning this, right? Whenever they face Europeans, they say, well, what? I mean, you're just sending, you know, some a few billion euros, but then Turkey is hosting about 4 million Syrian migrants, right? Which is, which is a huge amount. So the big question is, is that this is a rather skewed type of deal, in my opinion, that sort of benefits uh, the European partners much more than it benefits uh, Turkey, right? And also, it's not fair on the Syrians as well, right? Because you sort of, if you look at it from an international law point of view, you know, Turkey is not considered a safe country, et cetera, et cetera. Our legal friends, scholars, colleagues have been, you know, underlining these uh, things for, for a very long time. But still, you know, they have to, you know, they get to stay in Turkey. Now, another, I think, problematic point of the deal is that whenever, you know, things go wrong in Turkey or there is... Um, an issue between EU and Turkey that needs resolving diplomatically, then now Turkey has a leverage, right, with the migration deal. Like it can open its borders, etc. It can threaten the EU. You can say, well, it has a right to do so. But then what really happens is that the Europeans, they're not just going to welcome these people, right? And, you know, we've just had it just before COVID, you know, kicked in. You might remember that Turkey declared that it's opening the borders right after what's happened in Idlib. And then what happens is that, you know, Europe puts up a united front. So all of the European officials go to Greece, they close the borders, and that's it. People are just stuck. So it's just, so I think that was a great example to show that in case, you know, Turkey ever tried to do that again at a bigger scale, then it's just going to result in humanitarian tragedy. You know, Europeans aren't going to, you know, take people in just because, you know, Turkey's is, is sending them, them their way. So obviously it would, look, it would look bad on the part of the EU, but still, you know, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't take them, especially in the current political context that, that, that Europe is in. So it's this kind of deal that we have, right? So the EU, instead of agreeing amongst themselves um, on a common asylum policy, right, they have chosen to externalize their migration policies. And the deal with Turkey isn't the only example. You also have one with Libya and others. So the EU, this has become like an official EU policy of dealing with, with asylum right, and migration. Externalize it, right? Don't deal with it. Don't do any burden sharing because some member states refuse to do so. So instead, externalize it and make these sort of shady deals with, with these governments who have a rather dubious record on democracy, human rights, etc. This is what it's been doing. And in doing that, of course, it's sort of, I, I would say, damaging its own normative consistency, its domestic internal cohesion. Uh, so it hasn't been doing much good to Europe as well, aside from the short-term good that it did in terms of keeping perhaps, you know, the far-right parties, you know, at least, you know, less popular, keeping them out of the spotlight by making sure that the migration issue doesn't make it to the top of the agenda. But, but the issue was there. It's not going anywhere. Europe is, is becoming an ever more migrant society, et cetera, et cetera, with or without the deal. And many of the problems that they're having today are due to the fact that they don't come, you know, they don't face the terms that, that, that have been changing. Um, so anyway, I don't want to drift the debate too much uh, to the European side. But yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think this deal is the right place to start if you want a healthy relationship. If we assume that we have to operate with this migration deal, right, that I'm not very fond of, that many people are not fond of, but it's still there, then I think what the EU could do is to take its share of the burden a bit more, right? Mm -hmm. And to do that, not just goes through, you know, trying to limit the people coming in and just focusing on that, 
but trying to help Turkey deal with issues of integration, right? Um, in terms of the societal impacts of migrants. Because if you look at, again, if you look at polls, if you look at numbers, many of these people, Syrian migrants in Turkey, they're now, you know, settled, right? They don't have an intention to go to Europe. They don't, I mean, the more they stay in Turkey, they don't want to go, they wouldn't want to go back to their country and, and civil war hasn't ended anyway in Syria. So it looks like they're here to stay. And then, you know, the money, the projects and the general approach should be towards helping Turkey with integration. And I think that would help the EU perhaps to polish its image in Turkish society as well. And also deal, you know, help Turkey deal with a very larger issue that's going to go beyond this government as well. And, and this is something that will continue in its repercussions, but and perhaps even be bigger um, in the next 10 years, 20 years, etc., with the new generations of migrants and with new governments in Turkey. So I think uh, that's something that the EU could do if we'll just have to live with this migration deal. Now that, that's great. So that gets us beyond the transactional if the EU would do that, if they looked at yeah, this as being yeah, an, yeah. An, an integral issue in Turkey. And yeah. again, if we moved with economics, becoming more of an integral issue, not a transactional issue. So I'm going to try one final thing then. We're trying the Eastern Mediterranean Eastern and Med, Cyprus. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Cyprus, you've mentioned is, is an issue for decades. It has a formal place in why Turkey did not uh, complete accession to the EU. But now we have this Eastern Mediterranean question about access to resources, especially energy resources, and perhaps the Turkish government's perception that it is isolated, been isolated by Europe, it's been isolated by Greece, it's been isolated by Israel over this. Again, is there any step that the EU could take to get this beyond the transactional or the idea that there's pressure on Turkey for a more cooperative approach to the Eastern Mediterranean? I mean, or, or is that again ruled out by politics at this point? Well, the EU has somehow its hands tied when it comes to this Eastern Mediterranean issue. I mean, hands tied in the sense that it has Cyprus and Greece as members, right? And it has France as well, that is, you know, very much, you know, holding to that to their position, which is a core member state. So it has very limited place of space of maneuver, I think, when it comes to the Eastern Mediterranean. But again, perhaps if we should be a little bit more optimistic, you now have a new administration in the United States that is also critical of Turkey's sort of unilateral and overtly militaristic position in the Eastern Mediterranean, but that might also chip in trying to find, at least try to bring the issue to the more sort of to the diplomatic arena, right? Rather than just sending a NAPEX here and there. So in my opinion, it, you know, we might, I mean, hopefully, there might be a possibility for a more inclusive and a more diplomatic dialogue here in perhaps the next months, right? That might be possible with the new US administration. If it was left to the EU alone, I would see very little possibility of that happening. But now with the new administration, perhaps uh, that, might, that might be sort of possible. But I think it's also important to highlight that what's happening in the Eastern Mediterranean, in my opinion, seriously has to do less with resources and more to do with the sort of geopolitical rivalry, which is also a reflection of other sort of bilateral rivalries between Turkey and other European countries and other sort of countries of the region in various places like Libya or Syria, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, because in terms of resources, we know that there's not too much there and, and plus, if we're going to shift towards the Green Deal and towards a new energy 
uh, sort of portfolio, then it shouldn't really matter so much for Europe. But it's the issue is bigger than that. And that also shows, I think, that one concern of Turkey is perhaps less to do with how much resource it gets, but the fact that it wants to be included, right? That it wants to be included, that it wants its positions to be heard, etc. You know, one can be critical of the way in which it's going about to have those positions heard, but I think it would be, you know, it would make a difference if, uh, you know, the Western uh, partners could find ways of at least incorporating or at least, you know, look like they're listening uh, to, to their Turkish counterparts and taking their uh, objections into account. I think that would make a difference. All right, so let me ask you this, the big question as we well try to solve everything or at least ask the questions about everything. We've seen the Erdogan government, the Justice and Development Party, pursue transactional relationships, arguably with others as well, notably with Russia in the past few years. Uh, we've seen it to an extent in the Middle East with the Gulf states, the Turkish relationship with Qatar, for example. If the EU, and I know it's a huge if, if the EU was to make steps regarding the Eastern Mediterranean, regarding the question of migration, regarding the customs union, is there a possibility that we get back beyond the transactional, we get back to a relationship which does have a possibility of growth, or is Erdogan and the Justice and Development Party pretty much committed now to the transactional for not just the near future, but the medium term in terms of its policy and approach? Well, I mean, among those elements of the transactional relationship that you mentioned, I guess the only one that really, you know, yeah, sort of a reformed migration deal to some very limited extent. But other than that, I think the only one that has some prospect of, you know, changing this or and moving this relationship beyond the transactional one could be the customs union, right? Because if let's assume that the political hurdles on the upgrade of the customs union are lifted, mm -hmm. and you know, tomorrow it's a new dawn, and then customs union negotiations begin. Uh, and it's being upgraded. Now, if the customs union uh, it goes, if the customs union deal is upgraded, you know, it means that Turkey would have to reform its public procurement law, etc. Various laws that that have been uh, that that needs reforming, but that also have been beneficial to the government in terms of their hold on to power, right? So, to me, it feels like given the current political constellation in Turkey unless there are some changes to that, I see it's very difficult for the relationship to move to a sort of something that's meaningfully beyond the transactional relationship. Because even if the EU opens the, the customs union negotiation, which I think it should, by the way, right? Which I think it should. But because then it would, at least it would show that, you know, if the Turkish government wants to make the reforms that the customs union, um, a new customs union deal necessitates, and that's all fine, right? So that would be that would be great, I think. But even if they don't, then it would also go to show that you know they're not they're not going to uh, change their position on on the reform agenda. But at least the EU would have shown its goodwill to to, to Turkish businesses, to Turkish people, etc. So it would have done its part. But in my opinion, it would again be too costly for the government to undertake those reforms that are even required by the customs union upgrade, right? Even if the upgrade negotiations actually start. Because what happens when you change the public procurement law? What happens when you reform it? 
it means you won't be able to give tenders to people to to to, to, to your entourage, right? It won't, it means you won't be able to sustain your the system of your political economy, which you have right now, right? So um, I mean that also goes straight to the bottom of the support for the government. Would they really wish to do that, right? So these are all open questions. So that is why at the end of the day, since the relationship is obviously such a political one, um, that I find it very, 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 again, you need changes on that front for the relationship to grow in a meaningful sense. And I guess just as a, a postscript, a very quick postscript, in a previous discussion I had with uh, Professor Sully Ozol, he talked about the significance of the responses to the 2016 failed coup by yeah. the United States yeah. and how much that had affected President Erdogan. Uh, yeah, Europeans as well, not just the US. That's what I wanted to ask you. To what extent is there still a lasting effect from a perception that the Europeans were too slow uh, to denounce the coup and give support to the government uh, yeah. five years, well, now almost five years ago? Yeah. I mean, I guess the effect of that is more noticeable uh, or more notable in terms of relations with the US or perceptions towards the US. But I don't think we should underestimate how important that's been in, in the government's uh, views on Europe as well, right? Because, um, and, and that really boils down to the sort of typical classical argument that, you know, what we brand as terrorists are not designated as terrorists by the Europeans. And of course, part of the story has to do with PKK, but really overwhelmingly these days that the story is about the, the, the feto and the Gulenists, et cetera, right? That the Europeans are not recognizing them as we are. So they have a different definition of this and they don't really understand. And, and so there is that mistrust, I think, generally, but that's always been there, but it's just been made much worse after the coup attempt, yeah. Well, I tried my best. Uh, your realism. <laughs> so did your, I. <laughs> your realism has been refreshing um, in terms of laying this out across a whole variety of sectors: economic, political, cultural, geopolitical. I guess uh, will you come back and join me later this year to see if uh, if we have a ray of light that emerges? <laughs> of course, <laughs> and you know there should there should always be a ray of light because sure. what you mentioned at the beginning I think is super important that the Europe-Turkish relationship has been a very long one. Yes, right now I think we are in a very sort of distinct or unique phase with uh, you know changing global dynamics and also changing Turkey and Europe as well. But still, having said all that. We also know that things can change pretty quickly uh, as and they have so in the past, right? Um, in, in this relationship. So, and, and with a country like Turkey, who knows? All right, well, I like that. There you go. That, that gives me a bit of a ray of light today <laughs> as I thank you, Professor Senem Aydin Duzgi for uh, this comprehensive review of Turkey and Europe. Let me thank the deep dive politics team as always being excellent uh, in holding things together. Let me also thank uh, you, uh, viewers. Uh, remember that you can look at Deep Dive Politics via Facebook under that name or on Twitter at dive underscore politics. Uh, we have all our podcasts now of the World Unfiltered interviews on Spotify. And of course, all these videos, including today's, uh, will be on our YouTube channel. So we'll be seeing you real soon with another look, a deep dive in terms of what's happening around the world. But for today, Stay safe, stay sane, be decent to each other. I'm Scott Lucas. This has been World Unfiltered. <laughs>